From VT Digger, I'm Mike Dougherty. This is The Deeper Dig. This week, a new report from Vermont's Office of Racial Equity reveals widespread disparities in how people of color are treated in the state. The report describes how candidates or people in public office were threatened or harassed. It details racial disparities in traffic stop data, and it finds minorities are underrepresented and underpaid in certain state government roles. On top of these trends, people of color in Vermont, like in the rest of the country, have been disproportionately impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic. Hi. Hi. Our reporter, Amanda Goki sat down with the report's author. So Susanna Davis is the director of the Office of Racial Equity. She's been in that position for the past year and a half since it was created. And in that time, she's sort of seen her responsibilities and even her job description grow and evolve, especially in this past year when conversations around racial equity in the state have really been happening at sort of a, an accelerated rate. My understanding of her position is that it's to tackle instances of systemic racism in state government. And both in the report and I think how she understands her job, she talks a lot about how that's contained to state government, but in many ways it kind of has to look beyond that because the systems are situated both in government and beyond it. Got it. In the report, one of the things that you discuss right off the bat are the biases that many Vermonters have about who is a real Vermonter. You also mention how the pandemic has exacerbated that with the anxiety about people from out of state bringing the virus into Vermont. You cite traffic stop data where drivers of color are stopped at higher rates than white drivers. And also instances of of drivers with out-of-state licenses being harassed. So one of the elements of the report is this photograph that you included, and it pictures the back of a car with a message written in the dust of the car's rearview window. The message reads, we live in Vermont, waiting on new plates, as sort of an explanation of why that car had out-of-state plates. So this was a picture that you took and decided to use in the report. I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about how you came across this scene and what about it stuck out to you. Let's see. I guess it was spring or summertime, perhaps. So I was probably going out for some fresh air in between legislative testimonies or something like that. Uh, Or maybe it was a weekend day. I don't quite remember the, the details of that. But I do remember leaving my home and passing by my neighbor's car and seeing that message. And I was so struck, I had to stop and photograph it. Um, Of course, being careful not to include any identifying features. I was so sad and I was so angry on their behalf. These are people who are actually white. They are from another New England state. And so they likely have more in common with their new neighbors in Vermont than people might realize. But It says a lot about the atmosphere that we've created in this state where even people who demographically appear very similar and regionally come from a similar place still feel like they're at risk of being at best harassed and at worst harmed. 
just for the fact that they don't have local plates. So it was kind of painful to see because it showed that it wasn't just people of color from out of state or it wasn't just uh, young people. It was the idea that you could be anyone from anywhere. And if your plate doesn't say Vermont, then you might be in trouble. Do you think there is something to be learned by those who are perhaps experiencing this type of xenophobia for the first time? No, I don't. I think there's something to be learned by the people perpetuating it. What do you think that that lesson is? That lesson is, can you not? <laughs> I guess. You know, I, I think the, the lesson is that we have to be able to face reality and we have to make our outward claims match our behavior. So on the one hand, we say that we are inclusive and welcoming and friendly, and we have a small town vibe across the state that makes this unique and that we are neighborly. And yet those are truths that I know exist, but that are not borne out in our behaviors. Our behaviors and our messaging have created a very common narrative for people from out of state that we don't belong, that we never will belong. And I think that's more a lesson for people who are perpetuating that rather than for people who are on the receiving end of it. Because we're just here, we're just living. We're existing in communities that we've proactively chosen to be part of. We wanna be here and we wanna make it better and we wanna contribute to the fabric of, of the community. And yet, to have that sense of fear or, or apprehension, I think, says a lot about how strong this narrative has gotten in the state. I wondered if you could speak a little bit about someone who is also a newcomer to the state. What was it like getting established in a new life here and having the pandemic hit? You know, it, it wasn't a huge culture shock. A lot of people tell me that they assume that life in Vermont must be so radically different from life in New York. And true, I had I had been in New York City for about a decade, but I had already lived in New York suburbs that were full of snow and white people and very few activities that you could do without a car. So this wasn't really a tremendous culture shock for me. Um, what I did not expect, of course, was COVID-19 to hit six months after I got here. And so for me, just like for millions of other people, it changed how I worked, where I worked, when I worked, and what I focused that work on. But actually, I think about it, and it really didn't change the focus of the work that much, because so many of the disparities that we saw within and resulting from COVID-19 really were emblematic of broader systemic inequities. So all it really did was solidify for us that we needed to tackle those upstream factors. So I'll just give one example is considered well-known information that communities of color in the United States tend to be disproportionately more vulnerable to illnesses like COVID-19 due to their higher rates of underlying conditions like heart disease, obesity, diabetes, asthma. A lot of people would stop it there and assume that um, communities of color have those conditions because we're just, I don't know, more sickly or something. But in reality, so much of that is driven by epigenetic factors. That is to say how we live and where we live. So for example, we know that the highest rate of asthma in the country for many years was in Harlem. Why? Because that's where New York City parked all of its buses at night. So all of those children, black and brown children, were breathing toxic air. 
we know that Latinos in the U.S. are 165% more likely to live in counties that have unhealthy PPM 2.5, that's fine particulate matter, dirty air basically, and 51% more likely to live in a county that has unhealthy levels of ozone. So when we think about underlying factors, uh, do you live in a food desert or a food swamp? Do you live in a place with poor air quality because of socioeconomic factors? All of these things add up to a picture that shows that it's bigger structural issues that created the downstream disparities in COVID-19. So the equity work we were doing in Vermont perhaps shifted gears a little bit in terms of speed and the need to put out fires. But in reality, it didn't really change the focus because the pandemic only highlighted existing problems that needed to be addressed. How do you see sort of these two ideas of belonging on one hand and race on the other playing out in the state of Vermont? What do you see as the relationship between the two of them? What's most interesting to me is that when we think about a typical Vermonter, it is often the case that people envision somebody who may be white. Uh, Oftentimes, people who are white here, who maybe were born and raised in Vermont, they'll say, I'm a native Vermonter. And I always think, oh, you're Abenaki? Because if you're really a native Vermonter, then you're probably indigenous to the land, but if that's not the case, then what does that say about the way that we use language, the way that we think about being native to a place, the way that we think about ownership, not just of the physical land, but also of the culture and what it means to be from there. So when I think about the intersection of race and belonging and Vermontiness, I'm thinking about all of those things and the way that the message around who's a real Vermonter circulates so much around whiteness and proximity to whiteness, as opposed to being rooted in the recognition that this remains unceded land and that we all exist on this territory as a result of force, biological warfare, and the manipulation of laws that keep some people buoyed by the system and others oppressed by it. So when it comes to a sense of belonging, I think we really have to reckon with that. Then I think it's really important to um, acknowledge another truth, which is that in the state of Vermont, just like in the rest of the country, the millennial and Gen Z generations are the two most racially diverse cohorts in the state's history and in the nation's history. So as we think about Vermont and we think about its future, we've got to remember that we're not just planning for who's already here, we're planning for who's going to be here. And increasingly, that population is going to be more culturally diverse. So when we think about who is a real Vermonter or who belongs or what does it mean to be from Vermont, that picture will continue to change in the future. And that's not something that we have to brace ourselves for. It's not like it's it's something about which to be concerned. It's great. But how many people are out there decrying it because they think that somehow any deviation from what they see as a norm is somehow problematic, as opposed to recognizing that This is the natural path that society is taking throughout the country, throughout the world, really. And we can either choose to dig our heels in out of some sense of, I don't know, romanticized traditionalism, or we can acknowledge that our future is going to be bigger and brighter the more inclusive we are. That reminds me a little bit of an interview that you gave to VT Digger about a year and a half ago now, I think. And you mentioned seeing Vermont as a place that was excited for a demographic change. I'm wondering, in light of the events of the past year and the xenophobia that this report highlights, do you still see this as, as holding true? I do. You know, I'm, and I know this is kind of tangential, maybe it's a bad analogy, but I see people um, 
you know, the, a lot of people have fears of like crash paranoia on planes or shark attacks. And these are instances that really grip people's minds and they worry so much about them. But in reality, they, they rarely happen, right? You're more likely to get hurt doing so many other regular things that we do every day. But I think it's just the idea that even rare occurrences can leave big marks in our minds and stay with us. And so when we think about a lot of the, the bigotry, the hate, and the just recalcitrant attitudes around the state, it can be inflated in our minds to look like it's large opposition to progress. But in reality, I do see the state by and large as being very ready for inclusion. And there's a big appetite for this work across the state. It's just that sometimes the loud few can make it seem as if that's not the case. We'll have more with Susanna Davis when we come back. Hi, I'm Ellie French. I'm a reporter with VT Dicker. I know we publish a lot of news every day, and it can be hard to keep up. So I produce a daily audio digest of four or five key stories that you can hear wherever you listen to podcasts. Just search for Vermont News and subscribe, and you'll hear a new roundup every weekday around 5 p.m. One more time, that's Vermont News, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're already a subscriber, thanks for listening. I think one of those examples or instances from the report that really stuck out to me were the folks in running for office or just motorists in the state, people who did experience harassment um, on the basis of, of race. So now that we know that some of these things are a problem in our state, where do we go from here? Yeah, that's an important question. I mean, we've always known, right? I think now we're just people in the state are more willing to acknowledge it or rather less able to continue denying it. And that's, that's, I guess that's an important, that's a whole nother dissertation, I suppose. But, you know, to the question of where do we go, I think the only way to go is up personally, but, but I'm optimistic about it. I think that um, there are a number of ways that, that we could handle this. Some organizations slash community slash people will say, well, let's do the bare minimum. Let's meet federal requirements. Let's, you know, do a couple of uh, press statements, some low hanging fruit. We'll give a couple thousand dollars to some brown kids for a scholarship. And then we'll say that we've we've done equity. Congratulations. It's certainly one way to do it. It's very visible. It's very conspicuous ways of dancing around an issue. But what really moves the needle is when you make the more difficult change. And so I think that for a lot of years, we have found it easy to make the easier change, the low cost, no cost things. But we've gotten to a point where we've, we've exhausted that, you know, the low hanging fruit and where we go from here now that it's increasingly clear, now that it's undeniably clear all of the areas where we need to improve. We have to have a multi-sectoral approach to advancing equity. That means it can't just be on the state. It has to be on localities as well, because so much of the landscape of discrimination in this country has rested on local law. For example, policing policy, education policy, zoning policy, land use and exclusion from land use. A lot of those things happen at the local level. And so while there are a lot of state solutions that can be had, it's it's more often the case that you need a multifaceted approach. So local, state and federal involvement. 
It means community groups on the ground. It means corporations who are in the state who help to shape the state's culture. Um, and perhaps most importantly, it means individuals because all those other entities I named are just collections of individuals. They're people. And so it, it really is everybody's job. And so what are some of the things that we should be doing? We should be doing things like revising arcane laws that have served as barriers to people. So for example, um, if we know that certain restrictive housing covenants, restrictive deed covenants, excuse me, um, have led to exclusions of certain demographic groups from owning land historically, then we've got to revisit those policies. We've got to look at how that has shaped the, the landscape and residence, residency patterns. If we know that language access is a big barrier for people in Vermont, particularly the, the immigrant and refugee populations, um, to achieving services, et cetera, then what are we doing to broaden translation and interpretation services? If we know that students of color, students on IEPs, students living with disabilities are more likely to experience um, oppressive disciplinary tactics in schools, what are we doing at the school level to make sure that these disparities don't persist? So there are so many different things that we could do. It's all about which ones are we going to do now and which ones are we going to keep putting off? Yeah. And I think it's really interesting how you were talking about like the importance and the distinction in some senses of what the state does versus what happens on a really like highly localized level. And I, I think that's such an interesting topic as well in terms of your role and the focus or emphasis on equity in state government. And I'm wondering, you know, how does equity in state government connect to sort of these broader issues that relate back to what we were talking about at the beginning of our conversation with changing people's attitudes and issues like the xenophobia that's described in the report? You know, how do you work toward changing some of these prevalent attitudes? And is that within the scope of the work that you're doing? It is. It's, it's within the scope. It's outside the scope. It's, you know, swirling around the scope. I mean, you know, th this role is, um, this role took a lot of effort to put into place. It was the, res it was the culmination of advocacy from community groups, from individuals with lived experience, legislators, people in the admin, it was a huge effort. And it was also the first time the role had been created. So I think about its mandate. I think about the details of the enabling legislation. And I think about the broader need. Of course, we will remain in compliance with the enabling legislation. But more importantly, we've also got to look at what's the broader need beyond the scope. Maybe we're called to do more than what's being asked of us. And so I, I see it less as just how, how narrowly tailored can I interpret this law so that it fits squarely within the typical work of the state. Instead of anchoring the resources and the mandate, we've got to anchor the need and then make sure that our mandate and our resources flex to meet that need. And I think that's important because if we think about how much equity can we get based on what you know this little bit of what we're willing to do then what we're doing is asking justice to conform to our willingness instead of saying this is what would be just and let's expand our imagination so that we can meet that demand so i guess the really short answer is that 
so much of what needs to be done happens outside of state government. And so to some extent, we can serve as supportive partners and play a convening role and an encouraging role to other entities who also have responsibility in this work. Some of it happens by us or through us, and a lot of it doesn't, but the broader goal is justice. And so I see this less about strictly adhering to swim lanes and more about how are we all gonna get this done using our various toolboxes. Governor Phil Scott has proposed expanding the Office of Racial Equity, adding $250,000 to its budget. That's now under consideration by the legislature, and so far, key lawmakers on the House Appropriations Committee appear to back the plan. You can find more of Amanda's reporting on racial equity in the state at vtdigger.org. While you're there, sign up for Final Reading, our statehouse email newsletter, to get the latest on how these conversations are playing out in the legislature. You're listening to The Deeper Dig, a weekly podcast from the VT Digger newsroom. Search for it and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, and you'll get new episodes as soon as they land. We use music this week by Blue Dot Sessions. We'll be back next week with more stories from the Digger Newsroom. See you then.